world. Borealis. Paradigm expansion. Greetings from the north and welcome to a special forum issue called Something Strange This Way Flies. Our guest today is Walter Bosley, who's made some astonishing discoveries connecting such dispersed dots as the origins of modern anti-gravity technology, German nationalist and Nazi occultists, the breakaway civilization and elite banksters. He is a genuine researcher in that he follows the track wherever the evidence brings him, rather than seeking to confirm a biased agenda. This is probably in part thanks to his investigative background as an FBI counterintelligence specialist during the Cold War and special agent with the Air Force Office of Special Investigations. He's also been a personal security and anti-terrorism consultant for corporate and private clients around the world. In addition, he founded the Lost Continent Library Publishing Company. Apart from being a researcher in historical and occult mysteries, he's also an author of fiction, screenwriter, producer and a licensed private investigator. See our website for an extensive biography, full bibliography and filmography. Walt joins us now for a conversation on some remarkable research as outlined in his book, Friends from Sonora. Welcome uh, to the forum, Walter. Thank you, Al. Now, uh, full disclosure here, people. Usually, I read the books of the guests. I have not had a chance to do this with you yet, Walter, because I was just tipped off about you from uh, your friend Joseph Farrell. Yes. Yeah, and according to him, you come highly recommended. So I did some frantic research, and the more I find out about your books, the more intrigued I am. Now, I'm usually well-oriented about this kind of literature, mm -hmm. but somehow you slipped under the radar. But we're going to do something about that today. Well, I hope so. <laughs> I look forward to it. And that's probably the case because... Um, I, I think my stuff is a little too new on the scene here in the States in alternative research media. So they're just kind of – some of them are just kind of learning about me. It takes a few books to get on the radar over here. It does. It does. And it, it also takes a lot of uh, promotion like uh, interviews and uh, – references in media and stuff so it's a long and windy road and yet the so-called debunkers have the nerve to dismiss hard research into borderline stuff as if people are into it for the for richness and fame <laughs> <laughs> i don't think any of us are getting rich right no, no. So, but, well, the few that would earn so money is fully worth it because it's so much painstaking research you guys do. And uh, the book we're going to mainly focus upon today is called Friends from Sonora. Yes. Yes. Empire of the Wheel 2, Friends from Sonora. Yes. So it's a part of a series you do called Empire of the Wheel. Trilogy, yes. Trilogy. 
And I have to also to say that's a very Jacques Vallée-ish title. Oh, thank you. I take that as a compliment. <laughs> you should, and it intrigued me. So I'm going to order your book. So next time we have you on in the future, uh, I'm going to be more versed in, in your material. But you have uh, a good presence online. You have uh, a couple of blogs. Isn't that right? Yes, I have uh, the blog related to my nonfiction writing, which is empireofthewheel.blogspot.com. And then I have a uh, blog relative to the um, pulp, um, nostalgic-type fiction and entertainment that I like to do in my spare time. Mm -hmm. um, the nonfiction blog has been uh, a lot more active uh, in recent years because I've been so busy with that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, we, we don't bother too much with the fiction here anyway, uh, because reality is usually stranger than fiction. <laughs> it sure is. That's, wow, that's, I guess that's why you jumped uh, over to the other train. <laughs> that is the truth, yeah, I'll tell you. Okay, let's just get to it then. Something strange this way flies. Before World War Two and uh, World War One too, we had this uh, Zeppelin fad that suddenly went away. It vanished uh, after the Hindenburg, and uh, most people think that the so-called UFO phenomenon started right after the war, or during the war, maybe, with the Foo Fighters. But as you've been finding out, that's not so. Could you inform us a little about that situation prior to the war? Oh, absolutely. Um, there have been, you know, a few writers that have been writing about the great airship mystery of the 1890s and other um, historical UFO flaps um, th that have gone on, uh, you know, in some cases clear back to ancient times. Mm -hmm. And yet this history, this UFO history prior to World War II still never, never has seemed to capture a lot of attention in, you know, the alternative media and certainly really not in the mainstream media. Um, but it's it's a fascinating precursor to really what happened in World War II. And I decided that, you know, after reading what uh, Jacques Vallée had written about it, um, what writers like Dennis Crenshaw and Theo Pimans and, and a gentleman, uh, author named uh, Michael Busby, who's written one of the very best books on the subject, mm. um, the deeper I, I jumped into their work, the more fascinated I became with um, this interesting little group dating back to California in the 1850s, the decade before our Civil War. And this interesting little group of German immigrants uh, with some Italian rancher friends helping them out were apparently – dabbling in what essentially was anti-gravity technology and propulsion and building little flying machines. Now, wow. these were crudely built small machines, you know, made of wood and fabric and, you know, some metal pieces and such. Um, and they were, you know, allegedly a very secretive group. And I thought, wow, you know, what little I knew about them, this is some interesting stuff. And, uh, the deeper I dug, 
the the more interesting it became, especially when you consider what happened in the 20th century with you know the Germans during World War II and what they were developing and how that um, ties in with you know what was going on in the uh, post-war UFO scene, so to speak. Yeah, yeah, yeah. According to Joseph Farrell, uh, there was official research on these things in the 30s, and people think that's early. Right. But could we start with the beginning? You talked about Germans coming to America as a part of, I assume, the general emigration wave. Yes. From Europe the back then. Now, these people are any of these uh, well known? Well, the the well known. Uh, what you would call the the more well-known Germans among them mm-hmm. would be those involved in finance and banking, oh. uh, which uh, <laughs> that's uh, immediately a buzzword for those familiar with the works of uh, Dr. Farrell, uh, my good friend Joseph. And, of course, it raised a flag when, you know, they turned up in my research mm. because I stumbled upon them uh, not necessarily looking at the mysterious German group in Sonora, California, but when I was looking at an associated lead in my mystery, my Empire of the Wheel mystery, that involved a historical Western figure um, and how these German bankers in particular were connected to the railroad, which was associated with these historical figures. But what happened was I looked at the era that they came to the United States and what they were involved in. And then I looked at this mysterious group of German immigrants in California building these flying machines. And I began to notice little threads, um, you know, linking the two. And I realized, okay, I think what I've got here (laughs) is uh, the backers, the individuals that were involved with this mysterious group called NIMSA, which, according to our original source on these German um, uh, immigrants who were building flying machines in California in the 1850s, Mm. that man was named uh, Charles Delschau. He himself was a German immigrant. He's the one that brought uh, the word NIMSA onto this scene. And uh, I realized that what I thought I had was these German bankers were the money men the material resource men behind the mysterious group NIMSA, which sponsored the Germans building the flying machines in California. Have I confused you yet? (laughs) Yeah, well, it sounds like uh, a lot of facts at the same time. Let's start uh, chronologically here. Okay. Just for listeners who are maybe not so familiar with the history of science, Uh I have to point out that most people think 1850 to 1900 was uh, a very primitive era, but uh, actually, if you look into it, uh, from 1850 to, to, to the Second World War, there was much more going on in science in the world. Uh, it's like science was free. 
there was uh, many discoveries going on. Uh, there was different, I would call, directions of science than you see today, mm-hmm. especially all this about vibrations, uh, electromagnetism. It's actually much older than people think. And right. Of course, everybody has heard about Tesla, but <laughs> he wasn't born in a vacuum. So, but still, 1850, how do we know that there were, for a lack of a better term, UFO sightings in California that early? Well, um, we know that in the 1890s, uh, a lot of the mystery airship sightings uh, were taking place in California, particularly up in San Francisco and Sacramento. Um, However, the, the... the group in California in the 1850s, when you look at the research that's been done on the names associated with that group, you find an individual named Solomon Andrews. Now, there is a newspaper report on this um, in the middle of the Civil War, the American Civil War, on how Dr. Andrews demonstrated a flying machine to Abraham Lincoln's uh, War Department representatives during the Civil War hmm. and how the Secretary of War back then, Edwin Stanton, had uh, expressed little to no interest um, in spite of wow. an apparently very impressive demonstration. Now, there were no UFO sightings as such reported in California in the 1850s and this particular group, which called itself the Sonora Aero Club, um, they were very secretive, very secretive and controlling about when they would take their machines out and fly them. Um, so they successfully managed to avoid you know, being seen by enough of the public, if anybody saw them, for uh, reports to get out there. Um, now we're talking, you know, specific to what was going on in the U.S. back then, but it wasn't too long after that. You know, we're talking just uh, 30 years later or so that we had these massive uh, airship sightings, and this predated the era that you mentioned before of the Zeppelins and such. This was in an era, uh, you know, when people were not used to seeing um, these kinds of things in the sky, and it's important to note that the descriptions of these airships are much different than what would you know, be developed in known history, such as the Zeppelins and the blimps and other things like that. So, this, oh, so, how, so what did they look like then? Well, they did, they did have, many of them, the long uh, cigar shape, the Zeppelin type of you know, looking shape. But what was interesting is that you know, they, they had these powerful lights on them. Uh, they moved at incredible speeds sometimes compared to Zeppelins. Hmm. Um, they seem to work with um, an electromagnetic power, it seemed like. The, the noises that, are, that they're described making, um, or even the silence, uh, that that was the other aspect, you know, really the silence of them um, or the the music. Now, I have not delved too deeply into this particular aspect, but it's very important to mention that music, musical sound and tone, um, is involved in reports of this phenomenon. 
to the point where other you know researchers and writers have suggested is there something going on technically technologically with these airships and music or the use of sound so these things even though at a glance you'd say oh it's an air sh- it, it's a zeppelin you know mm-hmm. um or it's a blimp actually when you look at the details of the report um these things were not uh, your traditional air filled or gas filled mm-hmm. um dirigibles these were not these were not dirigibles as we know them no they remind much more more of traits connected to more contemporary UFO reports, especially the silence and uh, strong lights and uh, quick speed. And it's and the elegance. Uh, what, what's interesting is you're right with the with the reports of the technology with how they move. They're much more like the modern UFO reports. But what's interesting is their physical description was a more decorative, elegant object which when you think about it reflects the times if if your listeners you know they're familiar with the uh, steampunk culture mm-hmm. just imagine it, you take a modern ufo and you do it up like a steampunk uh craft and there you go that's what these mystery airships were like hmm. particularly the ones in the 1850s Right. Um, you know what? Let's let's just continue to talk about the phenomena before we delve into who's behind it. And, okay. Uh, because that, that most people won't even know about this phenomena. Sure. So I think it's it's better we 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 do this. So already back in uh, you said 1890s or was there sightings all the way back to 50s? Well, um, you know, anytime you dig into things, you can find interesting, you know, mentions of of this or that. But for the most part, in taking a simple look at it, the major phenomenon occurred in the 1890s. Mm. And in my work, I believe I have shown the connection between what was going on with these guys in California in the 1850s and the subsequent more famous 1890s airship mystery. Right, right. So uh, we can say that uh, in the 1890s it became uh, very prominent, this phenomenon, in people's... uh, Yes. It reached the newspapers much more. Oh, many newspapers. Mm. There were witnesses in the hundreds and thousands because these things were seen over cities across the United States, mostly in the Midwest and the West. Interesting. Obviously, they did not refer to it as UFOs or flying saucers. What was the term for it in the popular media? They called them airships. They called them airships, skyships, because mm. that's, you know, the back then, you know, there were ships crossed the sea. And these things sailed the skies, so to speak. Well, we so, still say spaceships. So yes, uh, I guess exactly. it's logical. So, yeah, it's a better word. Yeah, these were airships and skyships. Now, the guys in the 1850s, when they called themselves the Sonora Aero Club, that's uh, A-E-R-O as in aeroplane, you know, the aeronautical term, aero. But uh, in the 1890s, yeah, it was the mystery airship is what the papers referred to them as. Right. There was um, sightings uh, all the way up here in Scandinavia, too, um, I understand. Well, um, I'm not sure about during the 1890s. Those those I don't know about. My research pretty much focused on what happened in North America and a touch of South America. Mm. Be- because of the people I was dealing with, 
their trail pretty much went from North America to South America. But there were, of course, as you know, the mystery rocket sightings during the 1930s uh, before World War II broke out. Mm. And that's uh, still uh, a little early on the timeline. You, you said 1819. Officially, this first plane was launched when? 1905? Three. Three. I think it was, well... Kitty Hawk was 1903, but you know, as we know, there were attempts before yeah. 1903. There was even a, a man whose name escapes me. I apologize, but he was doing uh, tests of uh, flying machines in uh, uh, you know more traditional airplane type of stuff in uh, California hmm. uh, before 1903. I just cannot think of his name. His story has made it into the the media a little bit in recent years. And there was actually, I believe, a, a movie made about him uh, back in the 40s or 50s, um, interestingly enough. Uh, but, uh, yeah, his name escapes me. But he, he it's worth mentioning because, you know, it predated – it was like a – it was literally like a rowboat with wings. Mm. <laughs> It was so, very uh, quaint. So, so already in 1890, uh, there were sure. uh, attempts around. There were aero clubs around. Yeah. So people wouldn't be too shocked. Most people would have heard about uh, right. this. And then there's the legend in 1908. Mm -hmm. I should say the legend about the 1908 Tesla ship that allegedly now, this is a legend. Um, mm. There's a story out there that uh, Tesla designed this ship was part of the building of it, and it went to Mars and back. But that's another story. <laughs> wow. That's another story. <laughs> well, yeah. Uh, stories are often, uh, you know, you, you can base research on stories, but they can be uh, circumstantial evidence. Sure, yeah. So, uh, yeah. So we know that there was people trying to get stuff done at the end of the 19th century. And... Mm -hmm. uh, Officially, they got stuff done right at the turn of the century. Mm -hmm. uh, and, uh, well, it's not a big leap, I think, to imagine then that there were also undercover stuff uh, going on. But how did you tie these Germans to these 1819 sightings? Well, it all starts with uh, going back to the Sonora Aero Club and those German immigrants that uh, went to this small town west of Yosemite National Park in California called Sonora. And they, were, they based their flying club, their aero club there in Sonora. And a gentleman named Charles Delshaw, who emigrated to the United States in the 1850s, he was the first guy to write about this Sonora Aero Club and the mysterious organization called NIMSA. Now, Delshaw, in his journals, he describes NIMSA as an organization based in Germany. It's headquartered in Germany, and it supported and backed several of these flying clubs. The one in California, apparently, was not the only one. Now, he also goes on to talk about how he was sent to California on behalf of NIMSA. He, he was a representative of NIMSA who came out to California to meet with the Sonora Aero Club and these German immigrants to see their progress. Mm. And 
he was supposed to report back to the NIMSA in Germany. So there is also associated with this mysterious group NIMSA certain players in the 1890 airship mystery. Okay, mm-hmm. so I'm looking at this. I'm saying, well, the original source on NIMSA in uh, says that it was around in the 1850s and it was backing these small flying clubs, and this organization was based in Germany, right? Mm. And then we have the 1890s airship mystery in which NIMSA, this secret organization, is associated, identified with bankers. Mm. So I'm thinking, okay, I've got the 1850s group backed by the mysterious NIMSA, the 1890s mystery, which involves um, the mysterious NIMSA and, and bankers that are making all this happen. And you know, I thought to myself, okay, how does this possibly tie together? And I set that aside to pull a thread and investigate another aspect of my book. And in that, I discovered that backers of American railroads in the middle 19th century happened to be these German bankers who came to the Midwest um, the 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 Kuhn brothers. Okay, mm-hmm. now they were such successful bankers and so successful with the railroads that they became essentially the owners of more railroad miles than any other person or company in the U.S. They became very powerful and very wealthy, and they of course were from Germany. Now, Kuhn teamed up with Loeb. You had Kuhn Loeb. Kuhn Loeb owned the the Union Pacific Railroad, which was a major railroad then, and that ties into my research, the Union Pacific Railroad does. Mm -hmm. And um, so there I had these German bankers in the Midwest tied to the railroads, and I discovered another thing. I discovered that the airship sightings happened to follow closely where the railroad lines are. And I thought, well, you know, I, I wonder if there's a connection here further. So I'm digging a little deeper into this completely other aspect that led me to the whole railroad connection and the German banker connection. And that thread led down to South America. Okay. I I just have to interject. Uh I love the way you work. It takes an FBI guy. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> to nest up this trend continue well a, a lot of it a lot of it is you know an investigator's intuition and what you do is you pull threads you know this you pull threads you find things you set them aside and then you keep digging and then if you find something that resonates with what you've already found then you you look you go back to that and then you know this is how these things pop up but you always of course as you indicated before, you always need the, the, you know, the hard material evidence if you can find it before you really put the stuff out there. And that's what I was finding was more material evidence. Now, what's interesting about this leading to South America was it brought up the whole issue, of course, of gold mining. <laughs> and I, I, you know, I'm, I'm looking at this. I'm saying, okay, Del Shaw in the 1850s is saying that NIMS is a German organization. Um, I have this, uh, you know, this German banking group involved with, you know, the power of the American railroads. Mm. 
And then I have the 1890s airship mystery, which happens to be, you know, seen, you know, along areas where there's a railroad going on. And this is leading me to South America where there's a lot of gold mining, right? Mm. So I'm looking at the era and I ask myself, okay, what was going on in history and particularly with the Germans during this, during, you know, the 1890s and the early 1900s? Good question. And sure enough, it was the gold standard. You know, Europe and the U.S., they were all on the gold standard for currency, right? And it just so happens that when I looked into the history of mining in South America, that uh, it was in the 19th century that the real serious German interest in South America began. Now, we know we know the whole thing about in the 20th century and the whole Nazi connection to South America. Well, what I discovered, I believe was the origins of the German material interest in South America and what led to what became the Nazi hideouts after the war in the 20th century. All of this was filling in these gaps, and there were these German bankers. So then I realized, wait a minute, I think I might be able to identify this mysterious organization, NIMSA, which because of the way the world was excuse me the word was spelled it's an acronym it's all it's all capital letters n y m z a nimza um it was assumed because of during the 1890s the the new york connection to the airship mystery it has always been assumed that nimza n y m z a was an acronym for a New York-based organization. And, and, and it's easy to understand why people assume that because of the NY, right? Um, but I thought, you know what? There's something not right about this because going back to the 1850s, Del Schau himself said, NIMSA's based in Germany. It is a German organization. And you had these German immigrants making the, the most progress on these flying machines in California. There's your German connection there. Mm -hmm. And then you have these powerful German bankers with still with their connections to banking in Germany now in the United States, building a power base through the railroads. And then you have, you know, what was going on with uh, the gold standard in, in Germany in uh, when, again, this was, as you know, in the 19th century, there was the whole unification process of how the Prussian states became Germany, a unified Germany, all that going on, and that's in the mix. So I realized, wait a minute, it makes no sense that NIMSA, with all this I've just said, that NIMSA is a New York-based organization. We know, or, or excuse me, that the word NIMSA means New York or is anything in English. It didn't make sense to me. It made more sense to me that NIMSA, this word, had to have a German translation. So I sat down, looked at the acronym, and I just decided I need to break this down. And each one of these letters, you know, is there anything in the German language that these letters would represent? And I was astonished. Now, don't, do, not, <laughs> do not ask me to recite to you uh, what the actual, because I always mispronounce it in the German. (laughs) But uh, what happened was I discovered that the, there indeed is a German word for every letter in NIMSA that would apply and make logical sense. And when I did, uh, the first person I threw this at was 
Joseph Farrell, and he threw it past some trusted uh, native German speakers, and they came back and said, yeah, well, yeah, this is this is very good. The the only uh, recommended change was uh, whether to use the Y or go ahead and switch to the J, which is more appropriate in uh, proper German pronunciation. And so that's why in my German translation of Nimza, I actually the way I sp- say it's supposed to be spelt is N J M. Z with a lowercase a. Now, I explain in that book and even a little bit further in Empire of the Wheel 3 why Delshall would have written this as NYMZA, which he does in his material. And that's due to what is called transliteration. In other words, you know, he was writing in English, right, for an English potential English audience reading his journal. And so he wanted to make sure that they pronounced the acronym properly. So I, I ended up coming up with the, um, the literal translation into English is the Nationalist Hunting Pursuit uh, Airship finance or production office okay um however i think you know basically it was the the nationalist airship unit or something how we would say in english parlance here Mm -hmm. um now the 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 very important most important distinction here of course is nationalist not national because in german slash prussian politics going on at the time we know that the when you look at that the nationalists were they they were coming from a distinct perspective a distinct point of view and this was not a government any kind of government agency this nimza it was a private organization that were nationalists they were yeah. You know, of course, of course uh, if people don't know it, nationalism was on the rise mm-hmm. at the end of the 19th century and um, at the beginning of the 20th. Right, right. And, oh, and, and you know, not only were there – here's the interesting thing on top of this. Not only do I identify individuals involved from German banking in the 19th into the 20th centuries that were probably the players in the NIMSA, mm. they were, there were also hermeticists, occultists, German occultists in the mix. Now, as I argue in the book, and I think Joseph agrees with generally, um, and one of the reasons why he liked the book so much was basically these guys I'm talking about are the ones who created the environment from which the Nazi occultists, occultists grew in the early 20th century, sprung from. This is why what I found is important because this is the milieu from which those guys sprang and from which the development they advanced of this same technology. Here's the thing. The 1890s airship mystery and also specifically the technology used in the 1850s by the Sonora Aero Club, you can look at the drawings that Delshaw did and you can see the propulsion device. It is exactly the same technological concept that Joseph Farrell and Igor Wachowski have written about the bell. Mm. It is essentially bell technology. Hmm. 
that was being used in the 1850s in Sonora, California. It's astonishing. It when you look at Del Shaw's, uh illustrations, I recommend a book um, put out by a gentleman, Stephen Romano. He owns an art gallery, and he's a publisher in New York, and he has published an amazing volume of a huge uh, collection of Del Shaw's works of these uh, airships. And between that book which shows these airships, these arrows, I'm sorry, from the 1850s in full color schematics. Between that and Dennis Crenshaw's book, The Secrets of Delshaw, you can see these devices that are, they are exactly the bell. You've got the rotation, you've even got the bell shape in some instances. It's so, astonishing. Right, right. Uh, two points then. Um First, we, we can then safely assume that the bell did not uh, rise in a vacuum. And in no. fact, <laughs> these people have had a, a lifetime of research before getting to the bell, which means that the bell must have had more advanced intentions. Granted that your case is genuine here, then it must have been a more advanced aspect to the bell than just making it levitate. Right. Now, the second thing is, Mr. Delshaw, if he was indeed connected to this, uh, well, he was, but if this semi-secret NIMSA interest group tried to stay under the radar, how come Mr. Delsha was publishing and big-mouthing all about this then, back then? Ah, here's the beauty. He wasn't. These were all <laughs> private journals. Right. This was all a private journal. With the artwork was in his private collection. And when he died, get this, these works ended up on a trash pile. <laughs> and a man who owned a junk store, he found them and he kept them. And another gentleman, uh, Pete Navarro, um, who's really – he was the first to tell the story publicly about Delshaw back in the 1980s, early 1980s. Mm. And so Delshaw's story in the NIMSA, this was all a secret. Um, he died – I can't remember. I don't have the year in front of me. He died in the early 20th century, and this stuff would have been lost if the junk dealer had not found it. And uh, if Pete Navarro had not bought it from the junk dealer and pursued an investigation of who was this Delshaw, who were these uh, these German uh, immigrants in California doing this? Um, so actually, Delshaw was not um, intending to spill the beans, as it were, publicly. That came later. That came decades later. So the connection between NIMSA and the airship mystery is mm -hmm. dots that have been connected at a later time. This is not something that has been known these 150 years. Well, we didn't know anything about what was going on in Sonora, California with the Sonora Aero Club and Del Shout and right until these journals were found. Mm. Uh, by the junk dealer. When, when were they found? By the way? Uh, I believe it was uh, the early 70s, 71, 72, something like that. And um, a lot of, well, pretty much everything we know about the Sonora Aero Club originated from these journals by Delshaw and um, any kind of subsequent research that anyone's done in Sonora. I went there last year myself 
And I found several leads that I'm still following up on, and I'll write about those and publish those if I find anything substantial. Um, but it would prove that certain people were there um, at the time, or it, it would serve to prove that. Mm. And it, but it has been just a big mystery, you know, that's been out there. And then other the other guys, uh, Sean Castile, um, Theo Pimans, and greatly Michael Busby. Uh, these three really dug into this, Michael Busby especially, digging into the 1890s airship mystery. And he showed some of the, the first connections that probably linked Sonora Aero Club to this 1890s milieu. And what I've done is I've filled in the blank. My translation of, uh, of NIMSA is the first of its kind. Um, the only other translation out there was just a, a guess, a speculation, the New York Motor Zephyr Association, which was a, a, a noble tribe, but it totally ignores what Delshaw, the source, says about NIMSA. So, yeah, we are dealing with, um, in, in all honesty, the Sonora Aero Club and the NIMSA, they're just now beginning to really get on the radar and begin to have their due. I'm still one of the first writers on this and there were you know these guys before me crenshaw mm. you know usby yeah does nimsa pop up in uh, references anywhere else except for for this do we know no no delshaw is the source on nimsa and to the extent of what uh, uh, theo pimans and jacques valet and michael busby talk about in regard to the 1890s uh, material. Uh, Nimza is mentioned in the John Warrell Keeley. There's an interesting figure there for you. Keeley um, of the 1890s. Nimza, I think, is is uh, sometimes linked to you know what he was doing. What was he doing? He was involved in um, Schauberger type of ah. uh, you know uh, stuff that let me rephrase that mm -hmm. the kind of things Schauberger was doing and what is believed was used by Edward Leedskownen when he built Coral Castle. In other words, yeah. you know anti gravity type stuff. Keeley was in the uh, middle late nineteenth century. He was a contemporary of Tesla. Tesla never met him, interestingly enough, but he was in New York there. He, he was the darling of American spiritualists and occultists during you know, his, his lifetime, his time of notoriety. And again, here we have these occultists popping up you know, with involvement. And, you know, going back to where the Bell technology came from, really it goes back to, to very, very ancient times with the Hindu... Uh, Ramayana and the Mahabharata and, yeah, and the stories of, sure. of the Vimanas, because the Mercury Vortex engine, so to speak. Mm. And these occultists, they would have been very much uh, aware of these kinds of ancient scriptures and these flying machines, these Vimanas. And so this is likely where this knowledge came from. So it should be no surprise that we have occultists and hermeticists and such in the mix here. 
It's logical we wouldn't find references to Mimsa because, as you yourself said, it's uh, an Americanization of uh, a club that already is uh, is uh, private. So uh, the big question then is if they had, and, and by the way, in uh, esoteric and hermetic circles, it's been a custom among the genuinely private ones, not those who, who pride themselves of being it just to get members right. <laughs> but those yeah. those who try to stay under the radar it's been custom for them not only to have different names and labels from the depending on the region they're operating in sure. like to say they have a chapter in in london and a chapter in hamburg they would have different names but in addition many have also changed names uh, in time not only in space but in time in during history uh, like uh, uh, external transformation so to speak mm -hmm. but uh, if we assume that you have uh, if you manage to to track up this German version of the NIMSA reference. Have you been able to find any references to that outside of uh, Mr. Delshaw's published material? Um, not, not as such. I have not specifically pursued it because I got on the trail of other things. Mm. And uh, however, in Empire of the Wheel three, the nameless ones, I do do some. I, I, I provide some more analysis of the word Nimza and how actually it is hieroglyphic in the the sense that even though I have discovered a German translation for it that the NYMZA version that Delshaw uses could still have actually been used. In other words, double meanings. Mm. Also very common among esoteric circles. Very common. Yes, exactly. And I go into that and explain other references to Nimza that might actually exist in uh, ancient Egyptian times. And that's in Empire of the Wheel 3, the nameless ones that I provide that. Right. Uh, I think you should uh, check it out because if there is separate traces out there that's not connected to, right. to the American flight, uh, there may be a gold mine of information waiting. Oh, know. absolutely, absolutely. And and I'm not done with the uh, Nanimza research. You see, Good. even the book I'm finishing up, I'm I'm in the middle of, I should say now, and uh, it's a follow-up to my book titled Secret Missions from last year. My Secret Missions books and my Empire of the Wheel books. They all, I'm writing on the same general milieu that I have jumped into. It's just a different aspect. So there are things in my first Secret Missions book which refer to some of this material from the Empire of the Wheel books. And there are things in the current Secret Missions 2 book that I'm writing that definitely uh, directly refer to what's in the first Secret Missions book and in the book we're talking about today, Empire of the Wheel 2, Friends from Sonora. So I'm still, I'm still dealing with this milieu. I'm just uh, describing different parts of it. All my books kind of tie together in one way or another. Right, right. So hopefully we'll we'll get to see the whole elephant eventually. Hopefully, <laughs> if you know, if I can, if I can describe it, I mean, I could spend the rest of my life, I think, writing about this thing and not get the whole picture. Who knows? All of our files are free, and will remain free. If you like the show, you can show support by donating one dollar to help with expenses. 
Just use the PayPal link on our website, YouTube channel, or Facebook page. Thanks. Is it your impression that those who call the shots were stationed in Germany? Yes. Yes. Mm. Either Frankfurt or Munich. Frankfurt, you say? Interesting. Or, or Munich, or yeah. Or Munich. Or Berlin, I'm sorry. I'm sorry, Berlin. Not Munich. Um, uh, Berlin, I think, is what my uh, information was indicating. Frankfurt or Berlin. But that's just, remember now, that's just my best speculation at the time based on you know a thread that i pulled um well i could add to that then that mm -hmm. frankfurt is one of the places in germany which have proved uh, esoteric lineages back to the 18th and 17th centuries ah, okay. uh, stuff. yes the problem mm -hmm. is that the nazis were obsessed by killing of every other occult and esoteric manifestation out there so they turned what was a mecca for occultism before they took over mm -hmm. uh, to a ruin after the war so that right. Most traces were gone, most people were killed off, most paper were either destroyed or taken by the SS. And this is probably also one obstacle for you then when it comes to finding German references. However, mm -hmm. back then there was very good connections between Austria, Switzerland and southern Germany. So Switzerland especially may have uh, stuff that has survived. Well, that's, that's very interesting that you say that because... Um, <laughs> in my new book, which I, I, I'll keep a secret until it's ready to uh, be released, um, Switzerland and, and some of these other places you're just talking about, that milieu from that point of view, um, the occultists and such, has uh, popped up in my current book that I'm writing. So uh, I, I don't know. I might have to pick your brain at another time to get some, <laughs> some good leads because you're, you're touching right on uh, some of the places my threads are leading to in the current book. Yeah, we can, we can take that in private. But uh, yeah. back to your mystery here. Um, oh. So we, we take it then that there's a powerful group. The, the Axel Germans are still connected, of course, to their friends at home. And do we have any indication that the people at home in Europe were experimenting with something similar? Well, you know, I didn't look deeply at that. It didn't pop up in to the extent that I was researching, but uh, I believe in general there was a lot of uh, research going on in the – I mean, I believe that was the early aviation period, at least the 1890s we're talking about, which – you know, I, I, uh, my understanding is France and Germany were really, really at the forefront of that in Europe at that time. So, you know, if, if they were doing something more secret, which I'm sure somebody was, um, I've, as yet, I haven't delved into that. No, but like uh, Joseph said the other day, there were sightings in Scandinavia. Now imagine you're a part of this uh, uh -huh. wealthy German group and right. you want to test out your latest models. Sure. Now Germany is very populated, even back then. They couldn't go far uh, until being spotted. So, and mm -hmm. I guess the Alps, maybe that's uh, too risky. So 
I think sending them off up to Scandinavia wouldn't be a bad choice because back then uh, the Scandinavian aero fleet was pretty primitive. <laughs> sure, sure. <laughs> and yeah. they couldn't Sad. they they couldn't defend their their own uh, airspace very effectively. So I, I think that could I'm just speculating here obviously, but Oh, but it makes perfect sense if there were if does. there were sightings during this era of, you know, 1890s early 20th century, I would say Nimza had a hand in it. Mm. Yeah, that, I I will say that. I, if 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 we're talking about, you know, these mystery type airships or what we would call UFOs today, if you're talking in the late 19th century, definitely Nim, th- this was Nimza's hand in this over in Scandinavia and anywhere. Well, anywhere I think around. it's a bit later, but uh, I wouldn't see them go away if they succeeded. Oh, they didn't. I don't think they've gone away. I explain that in the book, of course. Um, I don't think they went away at all. As a matter of fact, what I argue is that a the American faction. There was an American faction, which uh, of American industrialists who likely uh, broke off sometime after uh, Solomon Andrews made that demonstration to Abraham Lincoln's cabinet of the flying machine. I think sometime in the 1870s, American uh, associates of this NIMSA research, I think they broke away and established their own thing, which... I, I refer in my book um, at the, to this division as Team Nimza and Team Sonora mm-hmm. because um, the book goes into this in greater detail. But in a nutshell, essentially, I think the guys in Sonora, the German immigrants and the other – you know the guys involved in that, I think they liked being so far away from the home office, so to speak. I think they liked their independence and autonomy, and I think they eventually got involved with the American backers – who were probably from New York and the the Northeast United States. And this was the early stages of this American faction that I simply refer to as Team Sonora. So I think that by the 1890s, you had two secretive groups that were behind these mystery airships. And the the airship mystery that was going on in North America, I think these were – airships being built by the secret American group, which I call Team Sonora. And I think that this Team Sonora and their rivals, Team Nimza, the older Team Nimza, I think that they are what we call the breakaway civilizations. That was my next question to you. And uh, <laughs> have, you, have you been in communication with Richard Dolan? Uh, I met Richard Dolan for the first time at the Secret Space Program Breakaway Civilization Conference last summer in San Mateo that uh, Joseph Farrell spoke at, and uh, he requested a copy of my book, and uh, so I, I've met him. I, I of course, saw his uh, talk there, his and uh, Joseph's and everybody else's, and yeah, I, I think definitely when we're talking breakaway civilizations today, I think – we're talking really about the secretive NIMSA of the 19th century and this other American group. I think these are the two rival breakaway civilizations that have been operating throughout the 20th century and, and who are operating now. This has to be the cradle for that. But the interesting thing then is that, and probably maybe you're, you're touching up on this, but 
If there are two uh, rival factions, uh, one Amer and, and that makes completely sense because, first of all, uh, when they do emigrate, they are not that much in touch with the others. And mm -hmm. when you are working on something, it's just psychology. When you're working on something uh, exceptional, classified, you would want to, to keep it uh, as tight as possible. And uh, right. maybe there are also philosophical differences because when the nationalism took off in Europe, yeah. uh, obviously exiles, you know, they can be proud and, and all that. But uh, the American national feeling was also present, especially back then. Yeah. When I refer to the the American-based one, I'm speaking geographically because I yeah. think it, it might have started out with uh, American industrialists developing this. But, of course, over the last hundred and some years, um, geographically, it would be you know maybe headquartered in the States. But who knows – who makes up now in the international probably, community, you know, who that probably is. Probably on another planet. <laughs> yeah, 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 exactly. You know, and you brought up a good point, the philosophical differences. I believe that was the root of the split to begin with in the 1870s. I think the split was the guys in America, due to the, the, the where we were back then, um, you know, uh, philosophically, I think that the group that broke off, see, the, the German NIMSA, yeah, you had the powerful money guys, but you also had um, deep roots into the hermetic, the, the occult philosophy was still very much involved in what the NIMSA did. And I think these guys who broke off, they were the more um, – they saw themselves as the more practical. They just wanted to advance this technology and use it for – for commerce and to explore and they just they were the more nuts and bolts guys they didn't they they had a different philosophy i think this is where i'm coming from on this and they weren't so steeped in occult interests mm. they were the more practical you know gadgets guys who just wanted to advance a technology and exploit it for um commercial purposes or whatever and uh i think that is your philosophical uh break between these two civilizations. I think one is much more um, uh, uh, hermetic-minded than the other. And who knows if either one of them has our best interests in mind. <laughs> you know? And intentions are no guarantees anyway. So. <laughs> exactly. I, you know, I think, yeah, see, they, they got great yeah. stuff. We're screwed, you know? <laughs> <laughs> We're already deep into speculation area, sure. but we can substantiate this. If we assume then that the European or the German faction, you know, geographically speaking, uh -huh. were tied up to nationalist milieus, we may see one of the hands behind the Nazis. On the other hand, mm -hmm. The Nazis did go out and swipe clean, not only Germany, but the whole area of influence for secret societies, for secret sure. research, exotic research. So the big question is, did the Nazis hijack NIMSA or did NIMSA manage to play a part behind the scene of the Nazis? Because then we can see how the conflict was evolved during the uh, Second World War. Yeah. My position is there would have been no Nazis without the NIMSA. Elaborate, please. Um, I, when you're speaking uh, materially, 
you know, I think they were behind whatever material resources the Nazi scientists and engineers needed. Um, going back to the 1920s, really, you know, late 1920s and into the 1930s, I think they were the ones behind the direction that the Nazi engineers and scientists took their development. Um, I think, uh, yeah, they were definitely, they had a hand, NIMSA had a hand in the direction the Nazis went. Mm-hmm. Um, I think they probably uh, provided or directed them to material resources. Um, I also argue, because it's in my book in detail, um, that really when the Nazis uh, got into South America, and particularly when you know the survivors fled and holed up in South America, this was NIMSA real estate. Mm-hmm. And uh, Empire of the Wheel 2, Friends from Sonora, goes into that. It explains how that happened and how it's a, it's connected. Basically, the NIMSA owned uh, all that real estate that subsequently the, the Nazis were found hiding in. Uh, Patagonia. Including, uh, yes, Bariloche and uh, hmm. you know any of the other places. Yeah. I point out how this was uh, – first established, these places were first, the ownership was first established in connection with Germany through the NIMSA and their activities. So I like to say that when you're speaking um, the occult philosophy and when you're speaking the scientific uh, development and exploration that the Nazis were doing, you wouldn't have had any of that without NIMSA first. I definitely think NIMSA and its milieu, its people were a, a direct an active influence on the development of uh, the Nazi milieu. Hmm. According to Peter Lavanda, who, who is uh, like you, he's a field researcher. Um, yes, excellent. Yeah, according to him, the Nazis started to invest in these areas already in the 20s and the 30s, especially the 30s when they got the power. And obviously, powerful German families were connected from the 19th centuries because uh, Argentina especially, but many of these South American countries, like you point out, had a heavy German establishment. Only in Argentina, there's, uh, I think it's 4 million uh, Germans or Germanic people. So, so... If the Nazis already invested in these places during the 30s, for much for business purposes, but as as the war started and things went sour, also for a rat line. <laughs> purpose, mm-hmm, yes. <laughs> yes. So then it 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 starts to make sense that uh, because the rat lines were all over the world, but why so heavy in South America? Because as you point out, the NIMSA people were already established there. Exactly, because the, you know, the whole Prussian structure and then the early, you know, unified Germany, it started because uh, not just for the gold. I mean, they needed gold for that gold standard that Wilhelm, you know, embraced and, and put them on. But you see, they were also taking a look at the lost the the forgotten technology of the lost civilization down in South America. And that's another aspect hmm. that my work goes into. And my current book, I'm deeply in that right now on my current book. So now you're referring to the Native American lore? Well, yeah, it has nothing to do with the uh, – I mean, you, even in the Inca um, history, you know, you go back far enough – Remember, they told the Spanish at the time of the conquest that they had no idea who built some of these places. 
like you know Tiwanaku and and Cusco and it, it was a mystery to them. So we're talking a civilization that predates the Native American civilizations of North and South America. Mm. Uh, and we do know the Nazis were obsessed with expeditions to verify the antediluvian. Oh, yes. We've, oh, we've yes. touched upon that in several shows already. Sure. Uh, now, according to both Levanda Farrell and all the researchers, uh, the Nazis were very much tied up in certain corporations. Mm-hmm. And uh, Farrell mentioned uh, on a forum we had with him called uh, Secrets of the Third Reich mm-hmm. that... Already in the 30s, there was experiments with Bell technology uh, within, I think it was Siemens, one of these uh-huh. major corporations, yes. and also some kind of electrical company, I forgot the name. Have you checked into these leads? Um, no, because that's the, the 20th century stuff, uh, that is so well covered mm. by Joseph and others, and it. I'm my threads I'm pulling are all at the moment 19th century. So I'm I'm filling in the background as Joseph has told me. <laughs> it is virgin territory compared to yeah. most uh, else out there. That's so great. Somebody has to do it. <laughs> well, I'll tell you, it uh, you know, one thing leads to another and when you get deeper into friends from Sonora, it's going to blow you away what led me there. Because I'm not going to give too much away, but I'm sure you've heard of Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. Yeah, okay. I had one question about them, uh, but <laughs> but I must admit the extent of my knowledge is due to Paul Newman and Robert Redford. Oh, okay. Uh, and a, a little and a little Vicky glance. Yeah. It is a start, but up until yesterday, actually, I always regarded that as a very American cultureish thing. Sure. Now it's dawning upon me that this is deeper. You want to say something about that? Well, I, I'll put it to you this way. <laughs> when I pulled a particular thread, an unexpected bit of information came up. That, and I, when I say unexpected, I emphasize that. I had no idea that Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid would pop up in this stuff I was investigating about. Uh, I mean, it just blew me away. And then as I pulled threads, what astonished me was how their story connects to the German bankers that are associated with NIMSA. And um, when you read the book, I don't want to give away, but I pretty much redefine what their whole purpose for going to South America really was. And when you read the book, you'll see a a different view, point of view, based on the facts of the whole Butch Cassidy story. And it'll it'll astonish you probably as much as it does me. But I think that I present enough uh, solid material evidence that the speculation is valid. Let's put it that way. It is a speculation, but I, I think the speculation is a lot more valid once you read the book than it seems <laughs> – you know, when I, I just say, hey, Butch Cassidy's involved in this, you know, people go, what? What are you talking about? That's crazy. <laughs> yeah. And then when they look at it and they actually read the book, they come away convinced, oh, OK, there there's something to this. Mm. And uh, you'll see as as you uh, get deeper into it, you'll see. And uh, they are directly I'm convinced um, I presented the book. They are directly involved with some of these uh 
real estate acquisitions there uh, the Germans made um, that ended up being in the hands of the Nazis, ended up being hideouts for the Nazis, believe it or not. It's in the book, and you'll see how I tie it together. Right. Uh, in your book, since I haven't read it, mm -hmm. when you outline these things, are you good at footnotes and references and, and stuff like that? How is it uh, style? I hope so. I hope I'm good at it. <laughs> I hope I'm good enough. Not everybody bothers too much, but are you, are you very specific where you're speculating and... It's yes, yes. It's it's uh, funny that you'd mention that because I usually put my notes and source material in the back of the book. And Joseph Farrell, specifically, when he he read this one, he's the one that recommended to him. He said, "Look, take some time to do traditional footnotes where they're right there at the bottom of the page." And so I went back. I took two weeks and I went through the whole book and I took all my footnote stuff. And it's you'll see it's. It's footnoted right there, you know, like instead of you don't have to go to the back of the book or the end of the chapter. It's all right there on the page. And, yes, it's actually um, a very footnoted book. Um, so uh, this isn't – It's I, I tried my best to be able to present these actual legitimate sources where this stuff comes from and what I'm basing my speculations upon because you bring you know it's a good point it's very important mm. you know you you can you can write something and not provide any footnotes and it just it doesn't help the argument but this honestly this was so astonishing to me that I felt it was very important to footnote this in a way I had not done any previous books yeah and especially regarding your coming from fiction so <laughs> You've got the pain. Now. Yeah, you know, that kind of <laughs> that kind of throws people off, you know, because they think, oh, my God, he's a fiction writer. So how much of this nonfiction is he making up? But, uh, you know, I like to remind them, hey, I was a Boy Scout. I, I was, a, <laughs> you know, you know, I was in a profession where I had to be trusted. So <laughs> right. I'm an honest guy. You know, I'm sure. I'm. Uh, I'm trying to do it right. But how so. did this uh, transition go from from fiction to research? From fiction to the nonfiction? Yeah. Well, my first. My first nonfiction book was my Disneyland book, Latitude 33, Key to the Kingdom. And that was the result of having a conversation with a friend of mine who has a podcast, mm. and he's an author. And uh, we were talking about weird stuff related to Disneyland. And, and um, you know, I looked into it a little bit. And the more I looked, the more weird and interesting it became. But basically, the subject had come up to begin with, because I had had a personal, uh, very strange experience at Disneyland in the early 1980s. And uh, some strange synchronicities and other things had continued after that experience over the years. And, you know, all these things together, I just decided, well, there's that weird experience I had. There's all this other strange stuff involved with the history of Disneyland and the symbolism in the park. I just decided, you know what, I'm going to write a book about this. And so that book, Latitude 33, became my first nonfiction book. Hmm. Well, um, while I was putting that book together and in the process of publishing it, um, some other strange things happened personally and um, which I started investigating and were, was actually investigating for a year and a half, I think almost two, actually two years before I decided to write about it. So to answer your question directly, um, the nonfiction really came out of personal experiences that I just felt compelled to write about. And, um, you know, I found that uh, 
I found that it's hard to stop once you get started. <laughs> Did you do uh, the fiction as a cloaked way to communicate uh, your research? Obviously, I don't know about your fiction. That's why I'm asking. Um, only one book, one work of fiction, um, you could say is that. And basically, it was a time travel horror fantasy type <laughs> novel that I wrote at the same time that I wrote Empire of the Wheel 1, the first Empire of the Wheel book. Mm. I, I wrote it at the same time, and basically I put concepts and ideas, speculations in that novel that I did not want to put into the nonfiction book. And I'm glad that I separated them because the direction that the nonfiction book goes is more material and evidence-based and is a different animal but in the direction the novel goes is very entertaining people love it mm-hmm. <laughs> they they think it should be a movie um but yeah there were cer- there were certain ideas that popped up and I said well that's better for the novel and I just set them aside until I was mostly done with the nonfiction book and then went back to the novel and put it out there but um other than that I I basically my recent fiction is just me taking a break from the nonfiction and having fun with writing pulp. So, but I think people don't realize that it's actually an advantage because if you trained in uh, being a good storyteller, it's an advantage uh-huh. when you delve into research. Then we can uh, expect that uh, not only is the stuff you're presenting solid due to uh-huh. references and sure. research, but also presented in a way which we will appreciate because, you know, uh, things can be presented in many ways. So sure. so this just adds to, to the quality of your books. What little I read from you already online suggests that you're a very well-written guy. So I, Well, I hope so. <laughs> yeah, so, so I think people should uh, check you out. Now, before we wrap this up, I have a couple of uh, related questions to sure. the book again. Uh, first, Butch, Cassidy, and Sundance Kid, do they have any German connections the, themselves? Well, personally, um, uh, Harry Longabaugh, also known as the Sundance Kid, he was born and raised in Pennsylvania. Mm. And I don't know if you know much of the history of different states here in, in the U.S. Yes, German hermetic emigrants came to Pennsylvania. Oh, yeah, you know your... You, Johannes <laughs> you know your I was just... I'm not kidding you, Al. I was just writing about German uh, uh, hermeticists emigrating to Pennsylvania about an hour before we started this interview. Can I so. recommend? <laughs> can I recommend then a prime source for you? Sure, absolutely. You maybe know it, but it's a book by a guy called Julius Saxe. Okay. Uh, oh, you don't know it, excellent. No, okay. no, no. You, This will be good for you. It's the first serious take. I think the book came out in the 1890s, around there. It's uh, one of the first serious takes on the German emigrants to Pennsylvania. Oh, very good. Which were esoteric connected. Yes. And I think the book is called German Pietists and Rosicrucians in Pennsylvania. German Pietists. Yes, that was specifically. (laughs) Wow. (laughs) This is exactly what I was reading about today. So, yeah, but this this is is a primary source. Everybody else uh, copies this. Okay. Okay, So uh, you were saying then that he was born and raised there, Mr. Yes, in in Western Pennsylvania. Hmm. And he's an interesting guy. 
um, himself. Um, and uh, the other the the other German connection is this: in that the uh, the German bankers owned the Union Pacific Railroad or had backed. I'm sorry, they had backed, provided the loans, provided the resources for E. H. Harriman mm. to purchase the Union Pacific Railroad. And if you remember your Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid movie, they were always robbing the trains of E.H. Harriman. (laughs) Yeah, Union Pacific Railroad. Well, I discovered something real interesting um, about uh, Butch and E.H. Harriman, um, which was uh, very interesting in light of the fact, and you'll read about it in the book, very interesting in light of the fact that I had not known that these German bankers were actually the men who backed E.H. Harriman. Hmm. And I argue that it's the German bankers connected to NIMSA who wanted Harriman to send Butch and Sundance and their friend Etta Place, who is actually even more important in my investigation than Butch and Sundance are, but I don't want to spoil that for you. That's the woman they hang with, right? That's the woman, yeah. Yeah. She's very important in all of this. Hmm. Um, They went to South America... Um, sent there by E.H. Harriman um, on behalf of the German bankers of NIMSA. And um, that's all I'll tell you. Mm-hmm. Cool. <laughs> I'll let you read it. Sure. So. Yeah, don't ruin the pleasure. <laughs> but my first question then, as an investigator, would be, if these trains were owned by Harriman, who was his worst competition? You mean as far as other railroad guys? I don't know, as far as any interest, because obviously he was uh, pinpointed. Uh, someone was trying to... Well, it, remember, the Kuhn Loeb, they owned more railroads. They didn't They didn't just back... Here's how it was. They didn't just back Harriman to, to get Union Pacific. Mm. They backed a lot of other railroad guys. And because essentially, what, they held the paper, as you'd say, or they, they were the ones who gave the loans... They really controlled um, the railroad industry, and um, I would say that I, I don't know that the other railroads would be um, so much competition or rivals because the way the railroads work is you have your own rail line. Um, in the old days, that's the way it was. You know, you built your rail line and you ran your trains, yeah. you know, on yours. Um, and I would say that. Maybe other railroad magnates that might have not been backed by the German bankers would be, you know, your competitors. But uh, I don't think Harriman had to worry about that too much because he had, you know, investments and you know, so. Yeah, yeah. Bankers are always invested in both sides of any conflict. Sure. Oh, absolutely. Kuhn Loeb did. But I was thinking they were targeting. Uh, Harriman for specific reasons, but probably then they just took those trains because they were following that line. Right. Or are you going into this in the book? You've heard the well, you know, Harriman, uh, Union Pacific and Harriman, they were uh, involved in building some of the railroads in South America, so, you know, they saw it as expansion. But, you know, you've heard of, uh, I guess it's Brown Harriman, you know, the the current company. I mean, this is Mm. uh, and in the 20th century, the Harriman brothers who, you know, uh, uh, George Bush yeah, uh, I was just going to ask you about that. They're connected to Prescott Bush. Bush. Yeah, 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 Prescott Bush and all that. Yeah. This is the same family. The uh, the two Harriman, uh, these two were the sons of E. H. Harriman that was involved with Butch Cassidy. See, so this is how this all ties in. And um, you know, these Harriman would have been involved probably in the foundation of this 
some aspect of this breakaway civilization group that uh, split off from the German Nimza. So you begin to see when you follow these trails into the 20th century mm. how this connects. So oh, um, And you had the Nazi connections to the Blue Blood yes, uh, Americans. Exactly. For those who don't know it, uh, those uh, people here, Harriman, huh? Kuhn, Lube, Bush, they're all part of the old money. Yes. They're all part of the one percenters. Uh, it's about, uh, according to sane researchers, it's about, uh-huh. I think it's 6,000 people, 300 families, basically uh, at the top of the pyramid yeah. of today. So this is what they in pulp conspiracy literature would refer to as Illuminati. <laughs> yes, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So, okay, this is so interesting. The time is running away. I have a couple of more questions if you can afford it. Sure, yeah. Yeah. How advanced was technology connected to these? Uh, you, you did mention it, but you didn't elaborate on it. You, you described briefly how these ships were, and you also implied they had something to do with uh, the bell. bell technology, yes. yes. But uh, yes. as we know, the bell technology was also had time-disturbing aspects mm. to them. And of course, when you're into gravity, it's uh, unavoidable. So what do you know of how advanced this was? How did it come off? And uh, what did you read? Well, based on what I know, let me give you. Let me try to give you an analogy that might put it in perspective. Okay, let's start with this. You've got the modern, what we'll call a a modern UFO, right? Today's UFO that that is the kind of UFO they've talked about since World War II, right? Mm-hmm. Okay. Then you have the 1890s mystery airship version. Okay, mm-hmm. going back and then go back further to the little smaller contraption 1850s version, right? Mm-hmm. Okay, now you've got these three versions. The early little small 1850s version UFO or, or arrow thing, uh, the 1890s larger, a little more advanced version, and then the post-World War II version, right? Mm-hmm. Okay, now look at it this way. Look at it in terms of automobiles. The 1850s version of this Bell technology, anti-gravity little craft, that's like a Model T, a Ford Model T, you know, just kind of a a rickety old style early at car. Okay, then the 1890s version, that would be like, you know, a, uh, a, a 19... 55 Buick Roadmaster, you know, or, or a 50s or a 50s model Mercedes Benz. Okay. Right. Uh, okay. Mm. And then today's or, or the post World War II era uh, of UFO would be like a Ferrari race car. Yeah. So so do you follow me there? So yeah. uh, even though Bell Technology goes into all of these. In the 1850s, the Sonora Aero Club, they were dealing with the early Model T versions, which basically what it could do is lift up off the ground and propel forward. And, and, and just it was just really just a basic, very rudimentary flying machine, mm-hmm. flying machines. And then you go, you know, 35, 40 years later in the 1890s, and you've got the the 1950s Buick Roadmaster or Mercedes-Benz, you know, uh, uh, sedan version, okay, mm. of this Bell technology that still basically really all it does is fly, but it goes faster. It's a little sleeker. It's got a little bit more bells and whistles on it. But then you take that leap 
into the Ferrari Formula One race car, okay? Mm-hmm. And that's a different animal than that 50s Mercedes or Buick and a way different animal than the Model T. It's, you know, the, the automobile at its, you know, whatever, you know, the highest. And that's what we're dealing with today um, in whatever uh, this NIMSA group and these breakaway civilizations are flying, that's the Ferrari race car version of what we're talking about from the 19th century. Does that is that a good analogy? Does that? Yeah, it is. And especially considering that Mr. Farrell has made a point of that when you can see the evolution of UFOs in a very short time span, it suggests something terrestrial rather than oh yes extraterrestrial. I agree. I now don't get me wrong. I'm convinced that extraterrestrials are out there. I think that's a no-brainer, and I I'm convinced that they've been coming here since you know there's been life on this planet. Um, but I do agree with Joseph. I. I think, and after my background, I think that 90% of what people are reporting in the UFO world are very much uh, there's of terrestrial origin, mm-hmm. and yet it's coming from this fascinating, mysterious, secret background that we're talking about. So it's equally fascinating. Mm-hmm. The Ford models, that made me think of the man Ford. He was very connected to Nazis. Yes, he was. He was a little later, but have you seen uh, that family involved in any of this? I haven't. Again, I haven't uh, gone uh, into the 20th century no. aspects of this. I'm, and In fact, the book I'm writing right now uh, takes place right in the middle of the 19th century. And, and when it's out, I think you'll like it. Based on today's conversation, I, oh, sure. I think you'll like it a lot. Mm, me too. Wow. Well, it's it's very interesting. You certainly piqued my curiosity. And uh, I do think this area needs a lot more research and investigation because it's, it's such a blank spot on the map. And here's the funny thing. There's a lot of guys who are really, really into the 20th century UFO thing, yeah. and they and, and you'll be amazed at what little or in some cases nothing do they know yeah. about this 19th century stuff. And actually, anybody who looks at it, really looks at it, they come away realizing that it's essential. You can't understand – you cannot understand the 20th century UFO phenomenon unless you have a grasp on what happened in the 19th century. Obviously, no. Really interesting stuff here. I think this is a blank zone on the map, and I'm glad someone is delving into this and uh, trying to uncover this stuff. I I suggest people who are interested and curious uh, not only get your book, but since you're not an armchair researcher like so many else, people don't realize how expensive it is to research. So Mm. I suggest people that if you want us to get deeper into this stuff and keep Walter on the track, Sandal Detective on this track here, you go to his website, his blog, empireofthewheelblogspot.com, and you donate a few bucks so that we can keep you in business. I appreciate that. Every little bit helps, that's for sure. I'm I'm so obsessed that I probably will do it anyway, but you're right, every little bit helps. Sure. Uh, especially if you you have to go to Europe or something, I, I'm convinced you'll find stuff there if you follow up on the original NIMSA group. I agree. I agree. It's something that I'm still pursuing. Excellent. 
Uh, we need to get you back in the future, Walt, because uh, this stuff is really connected, that's for sure. And uh, when I've got a better look at your books, I can give you better questions. But I hope this will surface for, for people who want to check it out. Uh, it was a great discussion. I really appreciate you having me on, and I look forward to uh, being on again. It's been a pleasure. Thank you very much. Thank you, Al. Mm. So again, the book covering the research Walt shared with us is called Friends from Sonora and is the second volume to the Empire of the Wheels trilogy. Despite the poor sound quality, we hope you enjoyed today's forum with this fundamental preface to our entire ongoing Breakaway Civilization series. If so, feel free to contribute a few cents to help improve the listening quality. Drop in next time for an even more spectacular yet sober exploration of our fantastic reality. Until then, I sincerely remain your host, Al, and from the rest of the team, be seeing you! Who is number one?